Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. And we're into extra time. Kia ora koutou katoa and thanks for joining us for another edition of the Extra Time Podcast. I'm Clay Wilson and with me for this week's discussion we have White Ferns cricketer Susie Bates, Wellington Pride rugby player Alice Soper, RNZ Pacific sports editor Vinnie Wiley and RNZ rugby reporter Joe Porter. To kick things off this week we're going to chat about the global impact the coronavirus crisis is having when it comes to women's sport. As sports organisations are forced to make savings in the wake of the pandemic, there are fears that women's sport could bear the brunt of financial cutbacks in the sports sector. The level of concern has been significant enough for the leading representatives from World Rugby, the International Cricket Council and football's governing body FIFA to hold several crisis meetings to discuss potential problems and solutions. Of particular concern has been scheduling of major events and the support of the various member unions and federations. Susie, coming to you first, you're obviously involved at the elite level in your sport. What have you made of the impact on women's sport and I guess particularly on women in cricket? Yeah, I think it is a real concern with um, New Zealand supposed to be hosting the um, 50 over World Cup in 2020 and there's talks of shifting some of the, the men's cricket around which may impact on us but I think yeah, the important thing I think for me is that we're talking about it um, together, that men's and women's cricket and the tournaments and everything that's happening isn't talked about separately and I think there's a real opportunity to, for everyone to get around the table now and um, treat it as one. And hopefully, you know, we're we're used to playing in the amateur level and taking budget cuts, but I think we need to start from scratch and just make sure that we get around the table together rather than treating it separately and having one impact the other. You've obviously had one tour postponed already. Where do you see it going? And, And I guess, how do you try and work through this? What are the priorities at this point? Yeah, it's really difficult to look too far ahead. Um, we know that our Tour de Sri Lanka has been cancelled. That was meant to be happening this month. Um, we had some winter camps, whether we can get together as a squad or we just have to train regionally for the winter. Um, we'll be yet to um, find that out. Um, the next thing, which may still be a possibility, is we're meant to have a series against Australia in September. and with the talks, I think they are talking with each other about the borders. That may not happen in September, but I think we'll be able to work with Cricket Australia to perhaps get that series at a at a date closer to the World Cup. Alice, to bring you in here, I know you've heard a couple of interesting conversations around women's sport in the past few weeks. Olympic boss Karen Smith talking about it and budget cuts and what impact they may have on women's sport. Um, but also this morning you heard from the head of women's football at, at FIFA, Sarai Behrman. What have those people mm. had to say and what have you taken out of those discussions? Yeah, look, a big part of the conversation that I listened into this morning was just making sure that women's sport isn't you know, going to suffer from the last in, first out um, when it comes to looking at funding for us game. And also, of course, we're in a position where there's been a 
over commercialization of men's sport and, and women haven't had that opportunity. And so when it comes to, you know, contracts is needing to be fulfilled, um, obviously priority is going to go to that. And that means a, a more of a focus on men's sport um, in the interim. So it's really important that we don't lose uh, the gains that we have made across codes uh, in this interim period because we have to be kind of trying to tick things over in terms of funding. I think um, it's been interesting for me. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've played with people around the world. And so I've been having conversations with uh, different rugby teams, different rugby players, how things have been going on there. It's uh, obviously for us um, within Wellington, chances are we're not going to have any club before um, provincial stuff. It looks like at this stage they're going to still try to hold on to provincial, which is important because we also have a World Cup next year. Uh, talking to my friends over in the UK, um, we they basically had the end of their season just cut and the decision was made by England rugby that that season, everything up until that point, disappeared from the record books. So every try that was scored, every cap that was had, gone. Um, and that's pretty frustrating for a number of players there who had, you know, been making great yards in their um, premiership. And so now we've got players at home. Uh, it's been interesting to see the different attitudes and approaches. Some of uh, my uh, teammates are, are, you know, taking this opportunity to act like they are the professional athlete they've always wanted to be. They're in much more control of their um, environment and in terms of their work schedule. So they're able to put those workouts in a couple of times a day be in better control of their diet. Uh, you know, my, I was talking to my friend Anna Capelist, who plays for Ireland. They're still a team that is hoping to qualify for the um, World Cup next year. And she was saying that this is, you know, they've got to be putting their best foot forward at this point because they know coming out of this, Ireland rugby is going to be looking at funding. They need to be ready. They need to be ready to hit the ground running. And this is the opportunity for them to be putting that work in. What about the timing of this crisis for women's sport? Uh, Joe, you obviously... In, in our role here, we cover a number of different sports and there has been some good progress in some areas of women's sport and different codes. What does the timing of this do for, for some of that progress? Yeah, as Alice has already alluded to, it essentially halts it in its tracks, doesn't it? Because unfortunately for the women's game and its elevation towards professional status and full-time professional status, it's been kind of following on the men's coattails and, and, and an essence of needing them to also be making money and broadcast deals, et cetera, et cetera, to then be able to leapfrog off that. So the fact that a lot of the men's professional, most men's professional leagues around the world have been shut down, most professional sports leagues around the world have been shut down. Yeah, I think Alice is right. It's probably going to have a bigger blow uh, almost on the development of women's sport than it will on men's because, of course, men's is already there. It's just going to be a certain generation, perhaps, of players over the next year or two um, who miss out on a chunk of professional rugby in their career, blip on the radar, so to speak, but things will get back to normal. As soon as professional sport can resume, the broadcasting butts will keep rolling in and things will be back to the status quo. Whether or not that's a good thing is another question. But for women's sport, absolutely. They've got a lot of a lot of problems facing them from now on because the focus will be on money from now on until these big sports get their act together and get their finances sorted again. And until that point comes, Everything else, development of the game, grassroots level goes to the wayside, unfortunately, because that's the way that professional sport is run. So, yeah, I think Alice is absolutely right. There will be a lot of people around the world, a lot of female athletes and leagues and teams and a variety of sports that have been garnering a reputation for playing a great code and, and obviously making leaps and bounds in terms of the progress of getting their own competition set up at an elite level, getting contracts professionally for the first time. That sort of stuff literally will go on, on the back burner for now until the sporting world resumes as normal before the coronavirus. So I think it has a massive, massive impact. We've got the Cricket World Cup 
very close to the start of next year, as Susie has already pointed out, some qualification tournaments yet to be run. When will they be squeezed in? Is that tournament under threat? The men's T20 tournament at the end of the year or later this year in Australia, the World Cup is looking like it should be postponed or is likely to be postponed to 2021. Will that have a flow-on effect on the women's World Cup? You would assume so. So all these things, it's a domino effect. They start to fall over, boom, 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 boom. And now there's talk that the Tokyo Olympics may not even happen in 2021. That's how far back the backlog, so to speak, will go of all these issues. So I think sport in general faces a year or two of some real concern, some real change and, and real uncertainty. Women's sport probably likely, unfortunately, to be overrepresented in that statistic. We have the whole issue around momentum and the fact that these tournaments, you know, they play a really important thing, a part in terms of recruitment. You look at the growth across codes, it spikes as soon as there's been a tournament. That was another thing that Soraya Berman was talking about this morning, how important the World Cup for football was last year to see a massive uptick in terms of participation. We've seen that within rugby, the Commonwealth mm -hmm. Games, the Olympics, the um, Sevens, you know, having that visibility, the then uptick that it has out of that. You know, the rugby tournament we were going to be having here next year, that's also going to be a big part of that. So it's so important. But I think that there is opportunity within this crisis as well. There always has to be. Uh, and the, the fact is, is that sport is going to really struggle with its funding. So as much as we can talk about men bringing that in, a lot of the traditional forms of funding are not going to be there. So do we need to talk about bailouts? And if we talk about bailouts, well, now that's government funding. And so maybe maybe this is the opportunity and the point in time that we can start advocating for New Zealand's version of Title IV and bringing in some basic lines around equity of provisions for women's sport alongside men. And that's something that I'll be definitely advocating for in the next period. Hey, that's a great point, Alice. I hadn't even thought about the fact that the money may come from taxpayers. And if that is the case, well, there's an ethical, moral, and not only that, you know, many obligations to do what you're exactly saying and make it an equitable playing field. So so perhaps there is some light at the end of the tunnel here for women's sports in the sense that they can, can force some, some real change in their own domestic situations with regards to that playing field. You, re you really think there could be a, a big opening here? I think so. And I think the reality is we're talking about across economy, across society, right? We're, yeah. we're acting like um, COVID is throwing up these problems, but normal was already a problem. We were already at crisis point. We were making small increments towards something, but we needed a big shake-up. I'd been having conversations with people around rugby and the fact that women's rugby was finally getting to open the cupboard and we were finding it was bare because the structures yeah. and the systems that were set up for men weren't bloody working anyway. It's just that we were more comfortable taking a loss within men's sport. We, you know, we talk about women's sport being subsidised by men's all the time. I say that's nonsense. But the reality is it's just we're comfortable at men's sport losing money but we're not comfortable with women's sport losing mm -hmm. money. We don't mm -hmm. see that as an investment. But the reality is sports model and the funding of it isn't working. Audience numbers have been dropping. The participation has been dropping. So let's have the full reset. Let's have the full conversation. And I think that this opportunity is there if we're ready to take it. Hey, look, just to go on a real tangent right now, Alice, just because you seem quite knowledgeable about this, do you think that the astronomical figures that we see athletes getting paid around the world and some of the leagues like the NBA and like football leagues around the world, do you think those figures will come down because of this or do you think they will go back to exactly where they were before this happened? I can see um, Susie, you're waving, so I'll, I'll keep this answer short. Um, I, I think that there is very much a, a rejig that needs to happen here, right? Numbers, it's like a bidding wall. They've been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and maybe we needed to have a reality check on actually how much these players are worth. If you look at it, for example, within the rugby community, 
I have never felt more disconnected to our top tier than I do right now. You know, we talk about this COVID being a situation where we're all in this together. And I say nonsense to that because I'm watching these videos of, you know, some fancy rugby boys getting paid over a million dollars in his Renuera mansion, kicking a ball and saying, <laughs> oh, aren't I cool? It's like, mate, I'm still yet to receive any type of paycheck for my playing and I've been here for 20 years. So we're not in the same boat. And so there maybe needs to be a reorder and a reprioritization of this. And the thing is, is that this is why people don't have the affinity to the players that we used to. You know, it used to be that your All Blacks would be playing at your local club. They would have come up through there. You would have an emotional connection to those players. And I think that that's another thing. If we're, if we're locking borders down, which we're going to have to, we're going to see actually a whole bunch of players have to drop down grades too. And that's only going to mean a, a good thing, I think, ultimately, too, in terms of community connection back to the, the, you know, the heroes of the game. And I'm, I'm, you know, I have to take the positive out of it because that's, I'm relentlessly that way anyway. Um, I, I totally agree. Like, I think for um, cricket in particular, but all sport, it's a really good opportunity to almost start from scratch and look at the model and how can we make this more equal. Look at the money we've got. Let's start again. Let's build both back up at, a, at the same level rather than always trying to push them up and bring us up. And then that's more and more money that we have to use. So there's actually an opportunity if everyone sits around. How can we with the bulk of money that we have, how can we make it more equal and grow together rather than separately? That's, I see it as a real opportunity. Whether they get the right people around the table um, is another story. Are you seeing or hearing that those things might be discussed? They are on the table. That is a direction that things might move in? I feel like in women's cricket, there's been enough evidence that um, with the right investment, um, with increasing the profile of the sport, there is real room for for growth and um, revenue. So I feel like they sort of feel obliged to do the right thing by women's cricket, whereas if this had happened um, you know, five, ten years ago, we'd be in a different position. Um, I do really think they understand the importance of having female and male cricketers um, in the country being high profile or, or playing on TV. So hopefully, fingers crossed. I think there were conversations we were already starting to have here in Wellington. I can just speak of this as a club level, starting to have because, um, yeah, maybe I was organising a couple of them because we, we basically got stuck at about, we got stuck having the same conversation at the club level. And I think sometimes when we're talking about that um, top and, and bottom, the reality is if you make it all the way to a black jersey, things have worked for you along the way, but there are so many things that are broken at step one that are churning players and we're losing people all the time. And so we'd bought, um, I, I basically I'd set up a meeting that had brought um, representatives from each of our local clubs together so that we could have a real conversation about this. We've now got a year because obviously we're not going to be playing club um, rugby this year. So we've got a year to try and come together and, and see what those basic standards are. In my ideal world, I see a version of the living wage, but rather than living wage, it's women's friendly accreditation that we give to clubs to say that, you know what, they're doing the right things in terms of giving them access to resources, quality coaching, that this is a friendly place that's going to invite the women's sections into the social events and it's not going to be separate and, you know, all of this type of thing. I think with time comes opportunity and so we just have to make sure that we're making the most of it. I do want to talk on one thing that's the Railing Castle situation before we move on to a different topic but Vinny I want to bring you in here just on that um, discussion around an opportunity does the same opportunity exist do you think in terms of Pacific sport we've seen a lot of talk about the inequalities between Pacific sport and the rest of the world is this an opportunity for reset in that sector as well? 
Yeah, well, um, a lot of people that I've spoken to in the region over the last month or so have said, you know, in terms of adversity and you know, people training at home and, and people having to sacrifice things, you know, that's pretty common for a lot of people in the Pacific and a lot of the sports people, especially based locally. I mean, I think rugby, we've got top Fiji and Samoan players and the case in some other sports too, but, you know, professionally based uh, locally based professional players in, in their given sport, um, you know, sacrifice. And, you know, you think about the Vanuatu women's volleyball team that won a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games a couple of years ago. They're about a step away. They're now one step away from the Olympic Games. They were meant to go to China in June. Um, I think three out of the four players are mothers. Um, and so they're constantly juggling and having their kids on tour and things like that, that w- without the sort of resources that top sports teams or, you know, around the world would typically have. And, and that's just part of life for them. You know, they've, gone through Cyclone Pam four or five years ago in Vanuatu. They've, um, you know, they played at Mount Manganui the other week to qualify and, and then no sooner were they in Australia, they had to fly home again because of obviously coronavirus. So um, these sorts of setbacks and sort of improvisation is is nothing new to them. Uh, the PNG cricketers, you know, speaking of cricket, uh, the men are meant to be playing in that T20 World Cup come October this year. That's historic for them. That's absolutely massive. We've seen what cricket's done for Afghanistan and, and this is a huge step for Papua New Guinea um, they're training at home as well at the moment like the coach is competing and sending his videos in you know lots of teams are obviously doing this around the world you know sending uh, training videos and you know pulling tyres with their kids in the t- in the tyre and it's, it's you know they, they know how to adapt and um, I think for those elite sports people in those specific countries um uh, yeah, I don't think too much should change. It's just a case of, you know, we're obviously uncertain as to when are these sports going to be opened up again? When can they play? Um, a, a lot of them have come home, obviously, and it's a bit of a waiting game. In terms of funding, a lot of them do rely on funding from government already. So I guess if government has to support people in terms of wages or, or that sort of thing, uh, it might mean less in the pot for sports. But, but sports is obviously, I think as Alice has touched on, such a powerful medium for you know, people to come together and, and to promote that sort of stuff. So uh, in many ways, it's an ideal avenue to, to I, I guess, kind of kick forward again. Uh, and obviously, uncertainty around when or if Tokyo will happen, but there's, you know, a number of Pacific sports people that had high hopes of getting there or achieving there. So, um, you know, to, to help them along that way would obviously be beneficial. Joe, I know you have to potentially escape. So before you do the, the railing castle situation, uh, we've seen this bubbling away and bubbling away. What do you make of this? Is we saw the letter from the from the eleven Wallaby captains come. It does appear to an extent that she's sort of been pushed out here. What do you make of how this has unfolded? Oh yeah, I think it's a pretty poor reflection on rugby in Australia in general. Really, um, I mean, eleven former captains basically ganging up to bully Railing Castle out of the job because they don't think she's done what they would have done. Um, Look, Rugby Australia is in, has massive financial problems already before Raylene Castle into the situation, and she's done a remarkably good job from all accounts of helping ease the burden of COVID-19 and other various financial issues that um, the governing body has had over there. They are in a bit of strife financially, not helped by the Israel Folau payout, of course, and, and that ongoing legal saga. Uh, this group of 11 players pointing to that as another issue. Well, <laughs> It's almost like they're saying that the Israel for Laosaga was Raylene Castle's fault. How is it her fault that some player goes online and makes homophobic comments? 
it's absolutely absurd. She is just dealing with the situation the best she's done with. New Zealand rugby have come out and backed her. They've supported her and said she's done a fine job over there in a very difficult situation and was dealing with things as best she could have, but no one else could have done any better. They are essentially saying that they don't agree with this Australian letter that's effectively removed her or forced her resignation from Rugby Australia. Now, Peter Fitzsimons wrote a very telling article, I thought, uh, about this letter and what had it actually proposed to Rugby Australia. Now, tellingly, there were three former captains, quite well known quite well known ones, John Eels among them, that didn't sign this letter. Three captains that are known to be fairly intellectual and fairly reasoned when it comes to thinking. They didn't sign the letter because the letter only offered up a million and one problems with Rugby Australia, but not a single solution. Peter Fitzsimons made that pact made that point very strongly. These captains, they wanted to see some change. They don't like the way it's going, but they have no way or no idea, sorry, of how to fix it. Phil Kearns can't fix it. He can't go in there and sort this issue out. Raiding Castle is a professional. She's a chief executive with a whole lot of experience and success behind her with her track record. And she's been forced out by a bunch of former players who think they can do better. You talk about an old boys club. I mean, Rugby Australia is in turmoil. It's in dire shape, and this is not going to help. This is not going to help in any form and I just think it's an absolute tragedy for the game over there because these players have essentially forced them out. And it just sort of, I guess, reinforces that image of Australian rugby being the domain of private schoolboys. Railing Castle is a great example of the glass cliff in action. So the glass cliff being the opposite of the glass ceiling, it's when people cannot see the uh, disaster that they're walking into. Railing was given a poison chalice in that role it would be virtually impossible for anyone to have walked into the situation that was happening in Australian rugby and turn it around. And so now we have the frustrating thing, which is a woman of unending competence um, that has been given an absolute mess of a job um, and now is being pointed at as a failure when really it's everything that came before her that has led to this demise. Yeah, what a joke. It really is frustrating to see. I just, yeah, poor Raylene must be furious and have every right to be. She inherited a sinking ship, did her best to bail the water out with not a lot of help, let's be honest, from some of the other people in rugby circles in Australia. And now she's been abandoned on that ship and left to watch it go down by herself. It's just, uh, yeah, it's a tragedy. It really is shocking. Susie, what have you made of the situation? I know we're part of promoting women's sport and growing women's sport is having women in charge at the top level of some of these sports. What have you made of how this situation's transpired? Yeah, like Jay said, it's just a real shame the way she's been treated. And um, But I see it as an opportunity because I think she'd be great to be involved in New Zealand sport at some level. So um, I'm just putting the call out there. If she wants to get involved in helping women's cricket and women's rugby, um, you know, just sport in general, I think we should try and... Um, use her however we can um, since Australia didn't want her so that's where I see the real opportunities I think she'd be a great person to get involved in a crisis situation Let's bring her back and put her in charge of the fund put her in charge of the government fund that's going to be given out to sports across the board to be supporting things, let's put her in charge of making sure that the support is there for women's sports as part of that conversation Yeah I'm sure that would be a great way to push that equality and try and get some, um, some progress in that area Moving on to our second topic for today, um, staying with rugby, much of the focus this week has, of course, been on the world rugby elections, particularly the battle at the top between the incumbent, Bill Beaumont, and uh, the former Argentinian halfback, Augustin Pichot. So it's got very interesting. There's a number of twists and turns in this story, but I think no better place to start than what's transpired in Fiji. Um, Vinny, you've been across this story. It's been quite bizarre, actually, some of the detail that's been revealed. So perhaps um, explain how you've seen this unfolding and, and just what you make of it all and, and what it potentially means in the, in the final wash-up. 
Yeah, well, I guess from from a Pacific perspective, the interesting thing about obviously all the criticism and allegations and obviously many of them facts about Francis Keane, the FAU chairman, is that most of it's not new. Most people in the Pacific are well aware of these facts already, um, of, of his history, of, of what he has and hasn't done, of the sort of person that um, he is, I guess, and, and who he's close to in terms of politics. He, he's obviously brother-in-law of the Prime Minister, Frank Bonimarama, who is the president of the FAU, uh, which in itself is, is pretty common in Pacific rugby. We've got the Samoan Prime Minister as the chair of their rugby union, and in Tonga, up until his death last year, Akalisi Pohiva, the Prime Minister, was also the president of their rugby union, which has its own issues. But um, so, you know, what you have is he was already on the World Rugby Council, um, sitting in Fiji's seat, and, and that was confirmed at the end of 2018, and, and they sat for the first time in May last year. Um, nothing was really said publicly then, or, or in terms of a, a global sense. Um, I, I guess people were happy that Fiji Samoa finally had a seat on the World Rugby Council, which is another issue, um, but there's clear inequities in, in terms of that council and representation. Countries like New Zealand and England, etc., with three votes. Countries like Fiji with one, and, and some countries such as um, uh, Tonga, for example, with zero, despite the fact that at every Rugby World Cup. Um, that's one thing that Augustine, uh, Augustine Pichot has, has talked about wanting to reform. Um, but yeah, in terms of Fiji, so obviously he's been nominated for the World Rugby Executive Council, the EXCO, which is an even higher body, obviously, uh, in terms of the powers that be. And uh, I guess this is the maybe the, what's the I'm going to I'm going to muddle my sayings, but the something that broke the monkey's back or what have you. Uh, this is kind of maybe one step too far, um, obviously, because this is it's a bit of a tragedy, really, because to get a Pacific Island representative on the EXCO would be massive. It would be really significant. It would be more influence of, of what is a pretty big lack of influence as it stands anyway traditionally um and, and then for that to be the nominee is it's probably not ideal um he's still the fau chairman he's been it for five years the statement put out by the fau uh they've refused to go on record in terms of interviews over the last few days or, or weeks even um but uh the statement they put out made it pretty clear he's still the chairman of the fau and that isn't going to change um and, and that's probably a reality uh world rugby have said that you know Sovereign unions can make their calls as to who represents them. But uh, clearly, World Rugby had a tap on the back and said, get them off the council and, and, and get rid of the nominations. So there's obviously an investigation going on in terms of, uh, I, I guess, the new information from the Sunday Times is that the allegations of uh, homophobic comments when he was in charge of the prison service, there's been audio recordings. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But um, yeah, most of the other stuff in terms of the manslaughter conviction from 2007 and the you know we've been talking um, about, about women's that sport, and, and women's well, well, rugby so, what would you like to um, see in terms of these elections is there a particular uh, direction in, in the higher you think of that, sport? that would that be ideal? better for this to um, head probably not um but um yeah so in many ways the real loser here is specific rugby because they don't get a representative on that council that they probably would have um and, and so i don't know if anyone has any thoughts there on where you go from there is it you have to take a really long, hard look as to who you nominate for those positions. Were there people in Samoa or, or other countries that could have nominated? Is this a lost opportunity? I mean, at least uh, Pichot and Beaumont are both speaking about wanting to reform various things that could help the Pacific nations, but uh, people have been saying that for a long time and it hasn't really happened. So, uh, you know, you, you take that with a uh, pinch of salt as well. And Vinny, we now find ourselves, you, from what I can tell, in this bizarre situation where perhaps the Prime Minister of Fiji holds what might be the deciding vote for the leader of world rugby. Yeah, well, um, I, I guess, as Alice alluded to, it's one thing to, to put these platforms forward, but um, even if Augustine Pichot, for example, or Sir Bill Beaumont gets in, 
um, you still need a majority vote on the World Rugby Council to get these reforms through. Just because you voted for Bill Beaumont, just because you voted for Pichot, doesn't mean you're then going to vote for everything on that platform necessarily. There was a vote two or three years ago regards, regarding Regulation 8, which is about eligibility, uh, and that was voted down narrowly. Um, there have been you know, certain um, things that have changed. Like I think at the end of this year coming in is the residency requirements, currently 36 months, three years. It's going to be pushed out to five years been debate as to whether that actually will help or hinder countries like the Pacific. But um, So yeah, one thing is the election, another thing is actually the votes and, and getting that majority around the table. Um, in, in terms of uh, the Prime Minister, yeah, well, he's obviously influential. He's the President. He doesn't have the seat on the World Rugby Council. Um, that is the, it's now being held by the CEO, John O'Connor. Um, so I, I guess it's natural to say that clearly the Prime Minister is going to have influence and, and maybe what he thinks goes. Uh, Certainly would be the case in, in some more, but there is a board. They do have to have those discussions. And, uh, of course, this is on the premise that everyone's assumed to vote, you know, in the Six Nations and Rugby Championship and all the other countries is actually going to hold true as well. So, arguably, if, um, if Fiji backed Bill Beaumont's uh, bid because um, France had nominated him or something and, and then they seconded it, and I guess that was in return for the fact that France had seconded um, Francis Keane's nomination uh, for the Executive Council. Now, he's no longer on the Council, so maybe yeah, maybe Fiji's bid is is open. But uh, I know that there's already work undergoing in the Pacific. There's a working group that World Rugby have, a Pacific Rugby working group, that all Fiji, Samoa, Tonga Players Association have been involved in, and they meet once a year. And things like Regulation 8 and reforms to that, those discussions have been going on for a number of years. Um, you know, um, you know, the potential for reviews of that sort of thing. So that in itself isn't new. Um, I think as Alice touched on, you know, it's it's easy to say these things, um, but 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 we'll see. Um, Fiji have one vote, um, but but so does Samoa. So we'll we'll see how it goes. And just to finish off, I think we've got about sixty seconds left here. But just talking about administrators, Susie, there's been some meetings with the ICC this week, and obviously we've touched on the Women's World Cup here. How do you see that progressing forward, and what would you like to see happen there in terms of obviously the men's T20 World Cup and the flow-on effect to the women's tournament? Yeah, um, it's good that I think Holly Colvin's on the ICC committee um, and look, they've done a pretty good job just with the recent 2020 World Cup. We were very fortunate that that happened just before this crisis kicked off. But I'm just hoping that um, if they need to move it, that that's fine. Um, but I'm just hoping that it happens in New Zealand and that it's not affected by the men's game, that the reasons for moving it are solely so we can get all the teams into the country safely. But I think next year is a massive year for New Zealand women's sport to have the Rugby World Cup and the Cricket World Cup in the same year. And we've got to make sure that we are still able to try and use that the best we can if it has to be a little bit delayed. But I think it's really important um, that we get both of those up and running and just hoping that yeah, the men's game doesn't have an impact on that. And that's it for this week's edition of Extra Time. Thanks to you out there for listening. And thanks to a great panel today, Susie Bates, Alice Soper, Vinnie Wiley and Joe Porter. Stay safe and we'll catch you all next time. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. 
So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.